I like to think of my readers as a sophisticated bunch, or I suppose you could say viewers as well. And in terms of podcasts or videos, my content isn't personality-driven like so many others. It's meaty. And I don't mean that by way of animals either. Yes, you can be a vegetarian and digest my work. I myself no longer eat mammals, and, and I'm nearly a pescatarian by this point. I'm certainly aiming for that direction at the very least. That's a topic for another time, though. It's probably not why you arrived. I feel the content itself is what needs to be conveyed. And since I am first and foremost a writer, I prefer just reading from my work rather than hosting shiny pigeon glitters for visuals. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, by the way, in case you weren't aware of that by now, and I'm scrolling through my website. (laughs) People often don't like what they hear, and they fly off the handle. They start reaching into the scrabble bag of insults, and the religious community certainly have their Thai words. They usually come from Paul's 13 letters, FYI. And so I suppose I expect a lot out of you. I delve into meaty content, controversial content, sometimes unsubstantiated content, reading material from the ancients, often anticipating mature audience. I'm not trying to scare you from today's read or anything. I suppose I'm just rambling at this point. I often have a difficult time starting these recordings, so you'll have to forgive me at a choppy start now and then. I'm also pulling away from reading off of my work on TUC Live, the Unexpected Cosmology Live. Problem is, I'm somewhat computer illiterate, and so I'm learning as I go. The hope is to continue putting out this new content now and then throughout the week, just not in front of a live audience. I, I certainly do have plans for Thursday nights, by the way, but again, I'm getting sidetracked. Let's see if we can find it and pull it up. Here we go. Baseball, a Masonic ceremony. Angels in the outfield. As I was saying, I aim to research right and then put out content that is thickly layered, giving everyone reason to pause and reflect on what is being said, particularly what it means for their own lives. Today we'll be looking at some of that meaty material, which again is vegetarian and pescatarian friendly, as always. You can see what I wrote right here. It's spring cleaning, you know. Old papers are getting dusted off the shelf. And so, here's the latest. A vast improvement, if I say so myself. I turned in my first draft of Baseball, a Masonic Ceremony, a couple of years ago. The latest is given a heavy hand of polish, but then includes a look at the 1994 Disney movie, Angels in the Outfield, as well as the 1951 original. Also, a few other updates to my review of The Sandlot. And here's a spoiler. They all point to baseball being a Masonic ceremony. Let's get right to it. Baseball, a Masonic ritual. As you can see, it was first published on November 10th, 2020. An article on baseball would never be complete without mention of my father. I don't know why. Perhaps this is another shrink issue, and I should altogether stop writing articles on my hang-ups over the fact that we're being lied to about everything. Sure, he took me to Dodgers and Angels games as a child, but baseball was likely only nostalgic to my father because it was nostalgic to his father before him. This also probably explains why my grandfather attended our father and son outings. 
That is to say, we were not a sports addict family. From the stands, we peered in and digested the enthusiasm, but only sparingly. I figure their noticeable interests ultimately had something to do with our American pastime, hot dogs and the cult of patriotism and all that. Baseball was just something we did occasionally, kind of like visiting Mount Rushmore or the Grand Canyon. I also have a hunch that their nostalgia can ultimately be traced back to my great-grandfather, Linwood, a man whom I've never met nor rarely ever heard mentioned except in passing, but whose profound influence could be felt in the manner of my upbringing. So I guess you could say this is a follow-up to my recent paper on the Boy Scouts of America. If you're already confused, and you certainly wouldn't be the first, the Boy Scouts were created by Freemasons for the purposes of initiation. But what's new about that? John Wayne and Nat King Cole are a large part of our national pastime, and they're both Freemasons, pushing the Masonic agenda in practically everything they did. My great-grandfather was, too, Freemason. Hence, baseball and the Boy Scouts, which brings up my next point. I never even really thought about baseball until my web guy Dave told me in passing that he doesn't like the sport because it's a Masonic ceremony. And I was like, wait, what? My readers assume I have this all figured out, and yet I'm simply discovering the man pulling the strings whenever I happen to pass each curtain. Our goal should be to get the hell out of Babylon by removing one layer of occult clothing at a time. And the thing is, I never trust a conveniently hung drape. This takes a dedicated effort. You too can do your own research into all things esoteric, including baseball. If that's what you're committed to at this very moment, then welcome. I'm eager to take a wrecking ball to the labyrinth of lies, perhaps more eagerly than just about anyone. It's what motivates me to clap away at this here keyboard, week after week. I want out of Babylon. If my willingness to chuck a piece of Americana into the rotting garbage heap that is the lake of fire annoys you, then feel free to write your shell rebuttal about how baseball is not a Masonic ceremony. Go right on with your consumption of Cracker Jack. And by the way, if you remember Cracker Jacks with an S, then you've just been Mandela affected. Go ahead, pop that blue pill. Continue with the bread and circuses and paying no attention to the man behind the curtain, that sort of thing. Show reports and gatekeeping academics are a dime a dozen. Entire Christian ministries are devoted to them. I don't even care anymore. Yahusha is soon returning, and when he does, baseball is going to burn. Better get used to it now. Hugh Hefner's Hollywood sign will have to wait its turn, because every high place is coming down. You will accuse me of wild accusations based upon several Google searches and a hunch, but if you've taken the time to read my work, then you should know by now that secret societies like to pinpoint certain key individuals as road markers to the PSYOP while hiding the greater number of players so as to throw off excuse me, so as to throw us off their scent, but also to build the illusion that is the American dream and cause the spill to do its intended work. Finding a connection between Freemasons and their baby was not by any means difficult to do and only took a few moments of my time. The simplest search on Amazon.com provided the above item for sale. As you can see, the square and compass design has been clearly shaved off of its usual camouflage so that the baseball diamond is perfectly exposed. 
That's what the baseball diamond is, you know, the square and the compass. The three usual bases making up the square are present and accounted for on the diamond field. The only creative liberties are in the swapping out of the lines, which separate the infield dirt from the grass, for two baseball bats rather than a compass. But then notice how the pitcher's mound is substituting for the place of God. Take a mental note of that. The pitcher is playing God. It's a tie clip, by the way. Seems like its designer is proud of the ceremony aspect to their little slice of Americana. They can put it right out there in the open because most people are considered profane by the initiated and either don't care or won't notice if they did. None of this, by the way, is circumstantial evidence. Baseball did not become a sport of Freemasonry after endless nights of flamboyant, apron-wearing, and blindfolded, noose-wearing initiates were led into the dark among a roomful of closeted homosexuals. It was esoterically designed from its very conception. Like every ancient hieroglyph, the ultimate purpose of the mystery religions is to lead the neophyte to knowledge of the God within, the immortal soul. I can probably recite two, maybe three dozen baseball players off the top of my head. Mickey Mantle, Lou Gehrig, Ken Griffey Jr., Yogi Berra, and also Joe DiMaggio, thanks in part to Simon and Garfunkel. My first thought after hearing that baseball was a Masonic ritual was to begin typing random names into the search engine. I wasn't disappointed. Babe Ruth was a Freemason. Willie Mays was too. Ted Williams... Roger Hornsby, Cy Young, Ty Cobb, Honus Wagner, same story with everyone. They're all Freemasons. In fact, Masonic websites insist that baseball players are notoriously known for their involvement in the Brotherhood. Freemason Branch Rickey signed Jackie Robinson to the sport. And what does that tell us? I'm willing to bet Jackie was a Lodge brother. They probably all are. Spook literature grudgingly identifies baseball's inventor as a certain Abner Doubleday. Born 1819, died 1893. For whatever reason, they're attempting to spin the narrative, and it appears as though the bones of Doubleday, buried today at the, Na at the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, the very location of baseball's invention in, in 1839, are caught up in an identity crisis. But it all depends upon who you talk to. This is how Wikipedia phrases it. Doubleday was declared by the Mills Commission to have invented the game of baseball, but only 15 years after his death, having never made that claim during his own lifetime. What is the Mills Commission? I'm glad you asked. I had the same question. Wikipedia again. Now, I'm not going to read that whole quote there. You can see it for yourself. The Mills Commission found its origin in Abraham Gilbert Mills, and an exhibition game under the shadows of the Great Pyramids of Egypt. Nothing to see there, I'm sure. At a dinner held to honor the players, Mills was asked to serve as master of the ceremony. It is there where Doubleday was named by Mills as the founder of baseball. We are told the 300 guests in attendance was an eclectic and prestigious crowd, involving Mark Twain and Theodore Roosevelt. There he is again, Agent Mark Twain. I wish I could say I'm making this stuff up, but I'm not. The way in which Twain zigzagged about the country recruiting spooks, poking his head into practically every paper that I write, 
It's a wonder he had any time to publish books, let alone write them. I figure the Wikipedia makes special mention of Twain and Roosevelt because they were both master masons. They probably all were, which tells us that naming Doubleday as the founder of baseball was not by accident. Though slim on details, the Wikipedia is at least forthcoming with Doubleday's involvement in theosophy. In 1878, Doubleday relocated to Menham Township, New Jersey, just 40 miles due west of New York City. His move apparently had something to do with the fact that Helena Blavatsky and Henry Steele Olcott, founders of Theosophy, moved to India that very year. Doubleday became the president of American Theosophy in the wake of their absence. Seriously, did you expect there to be so many spooks in this paper? I didn't, because... That's what Theosophy's founders were, and Doubleday was no exception. Was he also a Freemason? We are not told. We needn't be, though. Being named at a flamboyant Masonic dinner is the tip-off. And besides, Doubleday did fight at the Battle of Gettysburg, and that was one big flamboyant Masonic summer festival. Every single officer on both sides were likely Freemasons. Just look at his accomplishments. According to the Wikipedia again, we read, he obtained a patent on the cable car railway that still runs there. That's, of course, speaking of San Francisco. Did he have to shake Satan's hand or something? His opening paragraph is bloated with handshakes. The Wikipedia describes his greatest accomplishment, quote unquote, wink, wink, by highlighting the fact that Doubleday aimed the cannon that fired the first return shot in answer to the Confederacy bombardment of Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861, thereby starting the Civil War. Major Robert Anderson was Sumter's defender, and I checked, he, Robert Anderson, was a Freemason. He would even go on to be knighted in New York City the following year. Then again, I didn't give up on the background checks. PGT Beauregard fired upon Sumter from the Confederate end of the operation, and he was a highly ranked Freemason, having only recently been knighted. If only I were making this up, try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. On April 12, 1861, there was a lot of boom, boom, boom going on in Charleston Harbor, and nobody died. They could have at least faked the numbers, as they, as they so often do. Nobody would question a hundred casualties with names like Jedediah Smith or Henry Jones, even if they were invented. The only mortal injury happened afterwards during a 100-gun salute, a certain Private Daniel Hugh. It is not an accident by any means that Fort Sumter resides on the northern 33rd parallel. The Civil War began with the lowering of the American flag at Fort Sumter on April 14, 1861, by Freemason Robert Anderson. It ended four years later, when Anderson raised the American flag over Fort Sumter on April 14, 1865. Same date, different year. Abraham Lincoln was shot at Ford's Theater by John Wilkes Booth that very night, April 14, 1865, same year. The Civil War was like one big flamboyant Freemason convention. The inventor of baseball was involved in the opening ceremony to a very strange war. Baseball has another inventor in the person of Alexander Cartwright, born 1820, died 1892. I checked. 
Cartwright was a Freemason. And once again, his importance as the father of baseball, quote unquote, is in dispute. Accordingly, its origins can ultimately be found in something called Knickerboxer, from which the New York-based Gotham Baseball Club is named. In 1842, Cartwright broke away from Gotham and led the establishment of the Knickerboxer Baseball Club. This might be on the test. And get this, Cartwright had a part in the 1849 California Gold Rush. Talk about a Masonic hoax. Not just Masonic, though. The Jesuits and the Mormons were involved in that one. Like Doubleday, Agent Cartwright got around. I suspect the rally cry of gold was simply alchemical in nature, a coded language which Cartwright would have been outright familiar with. We are not told who Cartwright spoke with in California, but he quickly reemerged as fire chief of Honolulu in 1850, a position he would hold until 1863. If that doesn't impress you, then the fact that a New York lawyer turned gold prospector turned fire chief then became an advisor to Queen Emma and her successor, King Kalakaua. I can't even pronounce that. King Kalakaua. Should. If only I were Hawaiian. Kalakaua was the last reigning monarch of the kingdom of Hawaii. His eventual overthrow probably has something to do with the intel surrounding his family for the several decades prior, preparing for America's westward expansion and a little something called Pearl Harbor. Among them were the Royal House of Hastings, involved in far too many psyops and historical hoaxes to number, which you can read about here, the Donner Party family relations. I also talked a little bit about the Hastings in my paper on the 1893 Chicago World Fair hoax. Agent Cartwright died on July 12, 1892, six months before the Hawaiian monarchy's abrupt end in 1893. It is by no means a coincidence that one of the leaders of the overthrow movement was Lauren Thurston. Are you ready for this? You may want to hold on to something. A roll of toilet paper will do. Thurston played baseball with Alexander Cartwright III. Sometime in 1837, before Cartwright broke away from the Gotham Baseball Club, Knickerboxer rules were formalized by another reported founder. William Wheaton, born 1814, died 1888. I checked. Wheaton was, wait for it, a Freemason. And just like Cartwright, Wheaton was a 49er, arriving to the Gold Rush PSYOP precisely on schedule. As if I'm not already suspicious enough as to what they were hiding in California, particularly the pre-existent cities of San Francisco and Sacramento, Wheaton was later appointed in 1876 by U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant to the Register of the General Land Office of the United States, a position which he held until 1886. Lodge brothers looking out for each other, I guess. But why diddle-daddle? We might as well get to the meat of the matter. As anyone who investigates this sort of thing will surely come to find, Masonic baseball leagues were common practice in the first two or three decades of the 20th century. I'm talking Masonic baseball leagues, all right? So, so, many, nation, uh, excuse, so many Masons surround baseball that eventually one has little choice but to throw up their hands from the keyboard and go, shut up, Sherlock. Let's put it this way. I could come up with my own sport. I could then go about proving to you that it's the greatest sport since Aztecs used human heads as a pitching and 
hoop dunking ball. There's your basketball connection. I could gather my serial readers into an empty field, perhaps where the train tracks meet Walmart, and provide a series of YouTube demos pr- proving to the world how incredible my new sport truly is. But nobody's going to play my modern-day version of the ritual human sacrifice because baseball diamonds carved into the grass of practically every American city doesn't simply happen on its own merit. That's not how the world actually works. We only know about baseball and a place called Elysian Fields, which I shall turn to in a moment, because spooks create the news and then write the books, but also the reviews. And if that doesn't work, They will purchase every first edition from the shelves and spend millions on their own crap art simply to guide the hand of every American as they cross the street. Or in the case of baseball, they will fill the bleachers with spooks, if need be. Case in point. By 1856, Andrew Chadwick, a sports writer for the New York Times, had already begun pushing the idea that baseball would become America's pastime. A couple dozen Lodge brothers were cracking their bay. A couple dozen Lodge brothers were cracking their bat with a ball in a little field outside of New York, and there's Chadwick selling America on grassroots. Right. A quick search on the Wikipedia will easily demonstrate that spook behavior surrounds Chadwick. His grandfather was a close friend of the Wesley brothers. His father had an unspecified part in the French Revolution, and his brother, Sir Edwin Chadwick, became England's quote-unquote, sanitary philosopher. Essentially, if you want to know what that is, Sir Edwin helped pave the way for Agenda 2030 by developing environmental measures and laws designed to counteract the effects of the Industrial Revolution. See what they did there? Order out of chaos. Chadwick was married to Jane Botts of the Virginia Botts family. Already, I've given you four separate rabbit trails in the life of Andrew Chadwick, sports writer, for the New York Times. Each probably deserves its very own paper. For spooks, you see, all swim in the same circle. The year was still 1845 when, in Hoboken, New Jersey, a baseball diamond was carved out of the grass. In Elysian Field, America's pastime would become seared into the national consciousness. On June 19, 1846, The Knickerbockers played the New York Nine in the first official recorded game between two clubs. Alexander Cartwright oversaw the ceremony as umpire. Hopefully you planted a Buzz Aldrin Hollywood basement moon flag after reading Elysian Field, because we've just been given another handshake introduction to the worship of Demeter and Persephone. Be sure to plant another next to Cartwright's role as umpire. If not, then follow along. In the ancient Elysian mysteries, Immortal rites were reserved only for mortals related to the gods, specifically those chosen by the gods. The importance of the spiritual Elysian plane cannot be understated in practically every, uh, excuse me, in practically every mystery religion, including Freemasonry, especially as it pertains to the earthly functions of secret societies, but also this topic, baseball. The assignment which initiates recede from the gods in the mortal realm hope to adjoin with their employment in heaven. Like the Mills Commission and their ceremony under the shadows of the Great Pyramids of Giza, Alexander Cartwright and her 
and excuse me, and his associates chose Elysian Field because they were thinking in metaphysical terms. It was the immortal soul they were after. Now, baseball hinges upon sacred geometry and is entirely based upon the number three. I will therefore remind you, so is Freemasonry. Consider the following. Three strikes, three outs, nine innings, nine positions, 27 total outs, 81 games on the road. Since we're suddenly all about numbers, I'll readily admit to the fact that I'm terrible at math. But I haven't even begun to dig into the honesty yet. Truth is, I'd rather trudge barefoot in the snow uphill both ways or play a game of Russian roulette with Dirty Harry than sign up for another round of algebra. Just in case you two are terrible at math, then I've walked the line between sanity and the banana peel by slapping together a couple of math equations. 3 times 9 equals 27. 9 times 9 equals 81. See how math works? Amazing. Math. It nearly fractured my mind. Hopefully, you're staying strong. Let's keep at it, though. A moment or two ago, I was trying to find out who it was that first called baseball a national religion. The person's name is Morris Raphael Cohen. Mm-hmm. Cohen. Take a second glance at the picture. And need I spill it out? Oh, fine. He wrote a book called Reflections of a Wandering Jew. Leave it to a Cohen to inform our reality as to what a religious ceremony is and is not. Perhaps as a child, I never understood the connection between hobby and religion because baseball came across as all sport and no ritual. Then again, I never grasped checkerboard duality either, which just so happens to be how baseball fields are trimmed nowadays. In reality, baseball represents the maintenance of the cosmic order of the universe and the ritual regeneration of life. But only among the initiated. One thoughtful glance at the above illustration, four corners of the realm and the firmament, and it's like everybody knows the earth is motionless and flat, positioned under a solid dome. Everyone but the gullible masses, that is. FYI, the gullible masses are the people hollering and jeering, stuffing their faces with peanuts and cracker jacks in the stands. They pay the ticket price merely for the elementary explanation of the hieroglyph and the exoteric amusements of life. The game is set up that way. I can't think of a better analogy, but that the world is a stage. That's quite literally what we're looking at here, but in cosmological terms. Its star players are traded around on various corporate-owned team rosters, while the unsuspecting public are invited to do their part as the profane and watch the initiated perform immortal rites. If you think I am simultaneously describing a Trump or Biden rally, or a Trump and Clinton rally, or a Romney and Obama rally, or a McCain and Obama rally, or a Bush and Kerry rally, or a Bush and Gore rally, then you would be correct. Baseball can perhaps best be described in the esoteric strokes of a Gnostic journey, and it goes down as follows. It is the spring equinox. Persephone is released from her annual bondage in Hades, and the game, much like the oncoming harvest season, can annually commence. A sacred song is rehearsed, and then the players, dressed in pure white ceremonial garbs, take their place on the sacred quadrant. 
the umpires are the priests of old, dressed in blue. They know the law and can therefore ensure the ritual is rightly performed. As spectators, our attention is turned upon the pitcher playing the part of the demurge. The field itself is the earth, by which the batter must navigate without obstruction to obtain self-illumination. When he steps up to home plate, it is his moment to defeat the dust he is shackled to and shine like the stars in the firmament above. The four bases represent the four elements. Home base is most obviously the earth, with third base, often referred to as the hot corner, signifying fire. Naturally, the pitcher's mound makes up the fifth element, and that is spirit. The shortstop, considered to be among the most demanding defensive position, plays off like Hermes, navigating swiftly between the spiritual planes. With the batter, we quickly arrive at the phallic aspects of the ritual. The home plate batter raises his, well, bat, which is not the law of the demurge, but the law of Freemasonry, and the sacred wand of the ancient mysteries, a gnosis which can be known but never described. Only the most disciplined of neophytes will succeed. If he strikes out, it is because he was not successful one-third of the time, and the grand architect, who is also the accuser, has secured his place in this present Hades. He must then go back into the dugouts, the ancestral womb by which he was formed, until he is called upon again to bat in another incarnation. The ball itself is the batter's spirit or soul. If the batter fails to vex the accuser, his spirit then naturally returns to God, the pitcher. If he knocks it out of the ballpark, he triumphs in so much as his soul has ascended beyond the firmament, prison walls of the demurge's making. He is now immortal. The Sandlot We'll just call this a movie review. Edit Movie Reviews Assuming you have read this far, or I guess listened this far, then let's take what we've learned today and apply it to something which I'm almost certain everyone should be familiar with. The added ingredient to every father and son story probably involves puberty. And one of my greatest adolescent expressions came while seated in a dark theater watching a baseball movie. Every hormonal act was conveyed in a single moment when the boy with glasses faked his own drowning at the public pool with the sole mission of having Wendy Peppercorn resuscitate him. You know perfectly well what movie I'm talking about. The Sandlot. I probably don't even need to rehearse the plot, but it goes something like this. In the summer of 1962, Scotty Smalls moves with his parents to the San Fernando Valley in California, where he has difficulty making friends. Although he attempts to hone in upon a group of boys who play baseball religiously at the local sandlot, he is embarrassed by his inability to catch or throw the ball, and his stepfather is too busy or perhaps uninterested to teach him. Only Benny Rodriguez, also known as The Jet, has the faith and patience to teach Scotty the discipline necessary to transform the profane into a player. As the, native, as the narrative unfolds, Baseball quickly becomes a metaphor for the fleeting moments of youth and the bond of brotherhood, which very few seem to find. By the way, the boy with glasses is known by his teammates as squints. Hitting the ball out of the park has never proven a problem for Benny Rodriguez. You think that would make him a master, but no. Rather, Benny has never been pushed nor tested to his own outer limits. The ultimate obstacle we come to find 
is that every single ball which Benny slugs over the firmament or scratch that fence line is guarded by a dog named the Beast. If we're keeping a lookout for the esoteric strokes of Freemasonry, the relationship between the phallus and the soul, then the English Mastiff should be easily recognized as a stand-in for Hades. Complications further arise when Benny catapults yet another ball, this time unknowingly signed by Babe Ruth, beyond the known realm, only to have the beast paw and gnaw at it in every possible way. Upon learning of their error, nobody, not even Benny the Jet, dares to retrieve it from the clutches of the beast. You see, just because Benny can play the demirs like a fiddle, doesn't mean he's gotten around yet to conquering death. It will take a Mithraic-like vision of ascended past master Babe Ruth, who enters Benny's room through the closet by night, to initiate Rodriguez into the immortal fraternity. And this is what Ruth says in the movie. Let me tell you something about it, kid. Everybody gets one chance to do something great. Most people hardly ever take the chance, either because they're too scared or because they're unable to recognize it when it spits on their shoes. This is your big chance and you should never let it go by. The Sultan of Swat then adds, Remember, kid, there's heroes and there's legends. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Follow your heart, kid, and you'll never go wrong. If you're paying attention, the Big Bambina, or the Big Bambi, the Big Bambi, I guess, <laughs> has just defined the stark contrast between a recycled soul and the dugout and an ascended immortal. Benny the Jet may be a hero, but he has never truly conquered death, thereby securing his spot as a legend. Moving forward, Rodriguez knows precisely what he needs to do. Break the uneasy but long-standing truce with the Mastiff. In an unprecedented move and against everyone's pleas for rationality, Benny plummets over the fence, retrieves the ball, and then scrambles back into the sandlot unscathed. That is, until the beast breaks through the measly boards separating them, as if its confinement behind the spiritual curtain had always been nothing. An epic chase ensues, but in the end, the dog is tamed. And I can't believe I overlooked this fact until now, but the Mastiff's name is Hercules. Really, how did I miss that? That's huge. There's hardly anyone else in mythology who entered the underworld more than Hercules. As the twelfth labor which um, Eurystheus assigned for his penance, Hercules was to fetch the Hound of Hades, kind of like the Mastiff. It was this act which brought about his initiation into the Illicinian mysteries. And there it is again, the Illicinian fields. The dog's owner is a black man named Thelonious Myrtle, played by James Earl Jones, of course. The character he performs, however, seems to exemplify the blind bard of Homeric legend. At any rate, Benny Rodriguez's bravery is rewarded and their chewed up ball is traded in for one of Mr. Myrtle's, which just so happens to be autographed by the entire 1927 New York Yankees. Rodriguez and his team have received the blessing and the favor of the gods. Baseball is a metaphysical narrative. Angels in the Outfield. I never saw the original involving Paul Douglas and Janet Lee. I probably should, though. 
The movie that comes to mind is Disney's 1994 remake. Danny Glover, Tony Danza, and Christopher Lloyd headlined that one. Those three names were easy to recall. It came as a surprise, however, to learn that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Adrian Brody, Matthew McConaughey, and Neil McDonald all had a part in the cast. My oversight is easily explained in that I hadn't seen the movie since its release in the theaters, and all four mentioned were at that time unknowns. The title in the remake is a bit of a pun, as the Angels in the outfield referred not only to the baseball team, but the actual team. How adorable. Otherwise, I don't recall any funny business. On the surface, Disney often struggles with esoteric knowledge. The idea of angels descending to Earth from the firmament to help people achieve their goals isn't exactly Masonic, per se. Ridiculous that angels would be concerned with baseball players, though, from a purely exoteric level. What I'm saying is, I only recall the angels being angels. Not so with the original, from what I've been reading. The Wikipedia describes its plot as follows. I'm not going to read that small print. Uh, You can for yourself. The angel played by Christopher Lloyd in the Disney remake is here identified as having been a ball player during his earthly life. Now we're cooking. We then come to learn that the voice is a spokesangel for the Heavenly Choir Nine, a celestial team of deceased ball players. Again, that's just another confession in the way of baseball being a Masonic ceremony, which seeks, which seeks to propagate ascended masters among the elite. They're not too worried. They know most of this will go unnoticed by the uninitiated and the profane sitting in the stands. You might be wondering why ascended masters would need to leave the ethereal plane to assist ballplayers. The movie informs us. Their concern lies with the combative, foul-mouthed manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. They even go so far as calling him Guffy McGovern. Guffy reminds us of someone who is unstable, and McGovern is self-explanatory and that he is not dictated by the necessary discipline of the game should he too aspire to become an ascended master. Looks like we need past masters to remind him of where he lost his way before he ends up in the dugouts for good. (laughs) 